I'm so relieved and glad that we here at Friendly Fire have decided to cordon off a donor-only feed for so-called pork chop movies. I believe that war movies are an actual thing, and while a concrete definition may elude our grasp, I am confident, to paraphrase Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, that I know them when I see them. In that sense, Predator does not qualify as a war movie, obviously. From now on, movies like this will be sequestered along with other of their ilk in a special place, our donor-only feed. But am I not human? Do I not also, like Adam and Ben, thrill to watching professional wrestlers coated in baby oil spew an impossible quantity of bullets downrange from insultingly implausible weapons at a special effects UFO that looks like a reggae hermit crab? Of course I do! I like it when Wolverine goes shrick. I like it when Tony Stark says he's the Batman. I like it when Spock uses his lightsaber to defeat the enemy King Klongs. I like all that stuff. They just aren't war movies. So now we have a place for them. I want you to know that we appreciate it. Also, I'm super glad that now I can feel good about watching these fun, stupid movies instead of feeling guilty that I'm betraying some sacred covenant I've made with you, the listener, to watch war movies only. But now, for the last time, I will betray that covenant one last time and bring you Predator, not a war movie. Adam and Ben really feel it's important in these introductions for me to give an overview of the plot of the movie, so listeners who haven't seen it can follow along without getting confused. They send me these detailed notes about the production every week, because we often watch movies with a lot going on. But imagine how I howled when I received, by special courier, the packet of background information about Predator. Ben practically drafted a CIA fact sheet on El Salvador in the expectation that you, the listener, tuned into this episode wondering about the historical context of this movie. So I will break it down for you so that you go into this podcast armed with all the facts about the movie Predator. First of all, there are two future governors of American states in this movie. That feels important. Also, none of this movie is true. No one in special forces smokes cigars in the jungle. Do you know how far away your enemy would be able to smell a cigar? Especially if your enemy was a UFO. Also, the people making this movie were clearly addicted to cocaine. Did you know there's no I in team, but there is an I in Tim? And two eyes in titties. Also, every mammal has two eyes. The UFO in this movie also has two eyes and two hands and legs and feet and so forth because, hey, let's not go crazy dreaming up what aliens look like, am I right? Anyway, you know that thing in Commando movies where every member of the team has a specialty and every guy has a signature hat or mustache or miniature owl perched on his shoulder? Well, this movie has that. Not the owl, the mustaches. Although the owl would have been cool. You know how the government is always portrayed as criminally inefficient and corrupt, and the real heroes are our group of streetwise gentlemen soldiers? Who, although they only just learned of the mission 30 minutes ago, they already know more about it, spiritually, than the 50 people upstream from them in the chain of command who put the whole mission together? And then these gentlemen soldiers defeat the bad guys and also shame their inefficient and corrupt handlers by employing the common tool of all earthly philosophers throughout time, the holy hail of unaimed flaming bullets. Well, this movie has all of that too, plus a UFO. Anyway, the cast of this movie is like the traveling Wilburys of muscle men. Except now that I think about it, where the hell is Rowdy Roddy Piper? That's an oral history I want to read, the day Rowdy Roddy Piper found out he wasn't in this movie. 
I bet the birds stopped chirping and the church bells fell silent. Somewhere across the country in the offices of the person at Johnson & Johnson who was in charge of the division that sold bulk drums of baby oil, you could hear a champagne cork pop. It was the 80s, people. The thing you need to remember most is that the first 20 minutes of this movie, where we're led to believe that we're in a Chuck Norris movie about crypto-communists and crypto-fascists creeping around in the jungle, is a terrible, terrible movie. But right about the time we learn that something is skinning soldiers alive, the UFO, and stringing them up in trees with their guts hanging out, it switches gears and becomes a great movie. The duplicitousness of pencil-pushing CIA bureaucrats is still a lowbrow subplot, but the all-out war between the Predator and Schwarzenegger's team leaves no room for us to worry much about plot. The harder they fight, the more death-dealing, but still kind of weirdly commonplace gadgets the alien deploys against them. Finally, Schwarzenegger proves he's the world's greatest action star, even better than Stallone in Rambo First Blood Part 2, which was a pretty low bar. So, now you have everything you need to know to understand the historical context of this movie, and my work here is done. I've seen some badass bush before, man, but nothing like this. The podcast is Friendly Fire, and the movie is Predator. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast featuring not one, but two future governors. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Clearly not one of the future governors, I think. Well, you never know. You never know. You know, actually, a third... That's the only one with an actual political career, uh, right. the three right. of us. Uh, a third member of Predator actually ran for public office. Right. And part of his campaign was <laughs> to reference the other two... Uh, guys in Predator that and, and that were governors. He was like, "What about me?" <laughs> Which guy was it? John Claude Van Damme, Sonny Landham. It was the Sonny guy who Landham. Billy, Sonny Landham, wow. who um, who has a very interesting role in the film and a very very colorful history post film. Also pre film, and pre film. That's right. I watched the little uh, making of uh, thirty minute featurette that. Uh, uh, infamously describes many of the hijinks on this set. And one thing in that they, that they say is that Sonny Landon had to have a bodyguard on set to keep him from attacking other people on the set. Yeah. And they say that, and then they provide no explanation or context or anything that would make you like understand what the concern was. <laughs> and he's like interviewed in the thing like they don't they, it doesn't seem like they asked him or he must be a great actor right because his stoicism in this film is a major point of character like it's a it's it's a foundational moment like when he breaks his stoicism that's how you know you're in real danger right <laughs> and he's really acting there because he's so unhinged that uh, he needs body. He needs a bodyguard to protect everyone else from him, and not the other way around. So, so in this movie, he plays what you could reasonably describe as a Rambo level of sort of racist um, characterization <laughs> of like he's the Native American tracker 
who can tell everybody's footprints because of his uh, Native Americanness. I guess. It's a hell of a combination. I'm looking at his IMDb page, and they, when they say that he has played several Native American characters, there are scare quotes around Native American. Yeah, right. I mean, but what's crazy about him as a person is that he got his start in films as a porn actor on, like, not even really great porn movies, but, I mean, not like, <laughs> not like the classics of the genre. But but definitely like play Debbie, (laughs) (laughs) but definitely like porn when it was filmed on 35 millimeter film stock in the 70s with like plots and stuff. Yeah. When it when it uh, when it crossed over and people were lining up around the block to see Deep Throat. Here are some of the movies he uh, he was in uh, the private afternoons of Pamela Mann. Uh, Let's see. The Passions of Carol. Uh, <laughs> Abigail Leslie is back in town. Carol, got, hold my calls. Uh, the honey and cup. my dick. Oh, here's a bad one. The trouble with young stuff. Uh, he Jesus. played in that one. He played Lane the milkman. Isn't he in one called The Machine Is Still On, Moira? <laughs> but he also, after Predator, uh, went on to have a political career where he became an openly racist anti-arab uh mega guy wow and he was bounced out of the kentucky libertarians because uh, because they said he his comments were not in keeping with the party's values you gotta you gotta be pretty unhinged politically if jesse ventura is like hold on there buddy you're taking it a little far (laughs) Anyway, so uh, so through the entire movie, <laughs> your was, Jesse Ventura sounds a lot like Rolf. <laughs> <laughs> I basically have one trick, Adam. You know this. I'm, I say that as a compliment because I love Rolf. <laughs> yeah, I love I love uh, the great the great Muppet caper when Rolf starts talking about how the Bilderbergers are <laughs> trying to uh, take over the United States government, and when Rolf takes the minigun to Broadway, that's uh, <laughs> What? Here's a, a little melodious moment. funk. I'm an ex-Navy <laughs> SEAL. <laughs> I may be the only one, but it sounds to me like you're doing Will Sasso doing <laughs> Jesse the Body Ventura. <laughs> it's Jesse the Mind ever since my political career started. Love the sound of an autotune piano. <laughs> When that when that character appeared on screen, I was like, "Huh, you definitely wouldn't." I don't think have an unreflected upon Native American tracker in a film made today. No. So this feels thirty years ago. Yeah, Sh- Shane Black wisely left that out and uh, f word for gay out of his reboot of the franchise. Right. Oh, is it, has this movie been uh, been remade? Yeah, there was a. I, I think it was a twenty eighteen film called the predator directed by shane black who plays hawkins why would you do it why would you remake it (laughs) because of all the money available oh i see what it is have you seen it i haven't seen it no i'm intrigued by it by its existence i would want to see it because it sort of seems like a dream right if you're shane black and you're and you're nostalgic for your experience here and you have the resources to create it again Right. Wouldn't you? I think there's something cool about it, but I don't know. This as a as a specimen, as a film specimen, is such a thing that it, it seems like it would defy 
recreation. Maybe we should pull a Red Dawn and uh, <laughs> and f- force ourselves to watch them both. I am in. Wow. Don't just tease that. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> if you have to ask me if I'm in, I'm telling you I'm in. Here, here's here's what I'll say. I have seen the 2018 Predator Ooh. film. And I was on a flight uh, the other day, and I knew we were going to be watching the 1987 Predator movie, and I noticed that the uh, airplane seat back television had the new one on it, and I thought, oh, I haven't seen this yet. I'll uh, I'll give it a look. And I turned it on, and 15 minutes into the movie, I realized I had already seen this movie on an airplane seat back television. <laughs> ah, you'd it, seen it already? and, and It took had, me a solid 15 minutes to uh, realize that I had seen this film. It's, it is so forgettable. Mm. It's too bad. Well, for my part, even though <laughs> I object to Predator's inclusion in our war movie podcast, I don't object to its inclusion in our Porkchop movie podcast, our, <laughs> our, our sub-podcast Porkchop movies. Uh, Predator, in some ways, is a perfect film. I mean, it is the perfect example of its kind. It's equal amounts super bad Chuck Norris movie from the 80s and super good weird science fiction like thriller suspense scare movie of of the late 80s. I mean, it really, I don't know, strange strange how much i hate the idea of this movie but enjoyed the movie i think that uh you could you could really make a case for the first 30 minutes of this film being right on topic for our podcast you know it's uh it it scarcely hints at what it's going to become and i think that that's part of what is so fun about it is that uh it really like shades in how how weird it's going to become slowly over time yeah, it sort of sells you on an intrigue that it never pays off. It starts a little Jack Ryan-y. Even. It does. There's a lot of Jack Ryan. There's a lot of Rambo. Yeah, and that that it surprised me. I've seen this film a bunch, but like I I had not watched it with the critical eye that I'm giving it for the benefit of our of our listeners. Sure. <laughs> I would, what you are uncritical of a, of a movie like this before, Adam. <laughs> I personally, I think. Aliens is one of the best films ever made, and the Rambo series, especially the first two, are some of my favorite films. Yeah, our listeners all know what your taste I is. I would ordinarily resent an action film for borrowing so heavily from those properties, which I feel like this does, and I feel like many of the people who are associated with the creation of it have said so. But it takes those ingredients and uses them so well like to be inspired by and bite the rhymes and still create something unique interesting and good i think is kind of miraculous the dna of it actually comes from rocky uh the 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 thomas brothers inspired by a a hollywood joke about rocky four uh that you know rocky was gonna have to fight an extraterrestrial in the next film because he beat everybody on earth uh, like actually went ahead and wrote this movie based on that. They were like, lol, let's do it. <laughs> Basically, which is uh, a creative uh, procedure that has worked very well for Adam and myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is nothing 
jokey about this film, though. It takes itself very seriously. After the first 20 minutes. Uh, so you're admiring the first 20 minutes, but for me, the first 20 minutes was an absolute cringe fest. Mm. The the two oiled muscle arms in the, you know, the signature, like, uh, soul brother handshake. Uh, when they first land the helicopter on the, on the pad in at the jungle base, they get out of the helicopter. Schwarzenegger lights a cigar. He seems to have a mustache in that scene, but he never really has a mustache again. So there's just like two second shot of him with a really kind of like five day mustache and then as soon as he gets out of the helicopter, the mustache is gone. But they all get into some Jeeps that pick them up there at the helicopter. The Jeeps drive away into the water. They drive through the water, back up on shore, and deposit the team 15 feet away from the <laughs> helicopter that just landed where there was a route uh, across dry ground, like basically a paved path. But they had those I know Jeeps, you were you know. paying attention to Schwarzenegger's facial hair, but what you didn't notice about this scene were the suede chukkas that he was wearing. <laughs> and you just don't want to get those wet, John. I understand the need for the, the Jeep trip. Yeah. No, there's a there's a geography to that space that they they very intentionally violated because they wanted to drive those Jeeps in the water. Yeah. So the, and then they get there and Carl Weathers is wearing like he's not just wearing a tie, he's wearing a knit tie. His shirt is tucked into his pants. He's a CIA commando taking over a jungle operation and he's dressed like Michael P Keaton <laughs> uh, for absolutely no good reason. Here's the thing about what Dylan is wearing in this scene. You know, uh you may be fortunate enough, John, at some point in your life to go out on a date with a with a young woman who is who is wearing a dress, a dress that accentuates her many body positive features. Mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. me, the overly tight polo shirt and tie combination is just showing off that cleave. It's true. That Carl Weathers cleavage. Now explain My God. Explain why all these guys are landing in the jungle, right? They're all like in their various like this is me garb. Yeah. Mac is in a suit. <laughs> and Mac is in a full suit. Like where was he? Did this helicopter pick him up outside of Studio 54? Like why is he why did he not have time to change into a sweatshirt. Do you believe that Blaine likes watching MTV or he just got the shirt at a Hot Topic? Oh, that 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 little cameo of his shirt as yeah. it goes by? Yeah. I, I gave that two thumbs up. Two hard thumbs up. <laughs> two yes. tumescent thumbs up. What I really like is Depeche Mode. <laughs> but but then, and then we're immediately transported into a scenario where they are raiding the jungle hideout of the rebels the rebels who are doing who are inter- interrogating some uh, supposedly some bigwigs or whatever there's it's a it's a classic rambo 2 style rebel encampment in that it has guard towers but it's not clear what they're doing there at all. It's not clear why they have a base there. Are they processing drugs? Are they fighting the local government? Who knows? But these guys, these commandos attack them, and every single person in that scene either takes 40 bullets to the chest, spontaneously catches on fire for reasons unclear, (laughs) or takes 40 bullets to the chest, falls out of a guard tower on fire for reasons unclear. (laughs) 
Like it is the most. Well, they spilled ridiculous. nail polish remover on their shirt while they were up there. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like the first bullet catches their shirt on fire, and their shirt happens to be made out of turpentine. Yeah, it's an incendiary ordinance. I love Dutch's aplomb with which he like he's like, no, I'm not just gonna blow up this truck. I'm going to put the explosive in the bed of the truck, lift it up, yeah. and send it going. Like, he's thinking he's thinking three action movie steps ahead about what would look the coolest. He lifted that truck up like a mom saving her baby. Yeah. <laughs> this is another Schwarzenegger film where he had to cut weight to be in it. He lost 30 pounds to be in this movie. You remember in Conan? He dropped 30 pounds to be in Conan. That where, was only a couple years ago. Where are those 30 pounds coming from? Water weight? Is he like wearing sausages around his neck like in normal weigh-ins? Way <laughs> I don't know. You never were that smart. I have to say, Schwarzenegger is so handsome in this movie. This is absolutely peak Schwartz. He is so just good looking. He's 40 in this movie. Can you believe it? He's 40. Wow. But he doesn't look too... He's not like The Rock who looks grotesque now. The Rock is so muscle-pumped that I feel like he's grody. He looks like a, ugh. He looks like too many muscles. Yeah, it's, the, rock, the Rock has never lost muscle mass for a role. He's only ever put it on. They, right. They're always like, uh, hey, do you think you could lose 30, 35 pounds of muscle for this role? And he's like, gain 35 pounds of muscle? Sure thing. <laughs> he's got muscular ears. <laughs> He's, he's not attractive, but Schwarzenegger just looks like, wow. There was a, a fun bit of uh, one-upsmanship on the set of this movie where uh, where Carl Weathers would not work out in front of other people because he was putting it out on the street that, that uh, his physicality was natural and oh. like genetic, so he didn't need to work he out. He was pumping iron in secret? Yeah, so he would go at like two or three in the morning. Jesse Ventura would go in before Schwarzenegger and dump a whole bottle of water on his head to make it look like he had been there for hours and hours <laughs> when he had just gotten there. <laughs> That's the, the sort of games that, that bodybuilders play on each other. There's some kind of muscle pig culture that we cannot even get inside. In, in the documentary featurette, uh, they have an amazing, like they interviewed Ventura about, uh, you know, about the workout culture on set. And he's like crowing because when he went for his costume fitting and they taped his, his arms to find out how big the armholes on his garments would have to be, they told him he had an inch on Schwarzenegger and it was in fact a prank that Schwarzenegger pulled he like got the costume department <laughs> to tell them to tell Ventura that his uh, arms were bigger than Schwarzenegger's wow I mean they literally were measuring their dicks and Ventura bet Schwarzenegger afterward he's like he's like my arms are bigger than yours and I'll bet you a case of champagne and Schwarzenegger's like deal and then they measured in the moment and Schwarzenegger won the bet it was a great, great bit of business. Do you think wow. they talked about politics at all on the set? I mean, this was right at the time when Schwarzenegger married Maria Shriver. Yeah. Um, which, uh, which was startling in the moment. Like that was a that was culturally hard to hard to parse. <laughs> She's one of the great one of you know pretty pretty close inside the Kennedy compound, and she married Arnie who was, you know, he was always a moderate Republican. And I think Jesse Ventura was a pretty progressive governor of Minnesota, given that he's 
just given that he believes in chemtrails yeah i mean he was a navy like buds graduate underwater demolition guy (sighs) turns out sonny landham is the real racist on or the real the real crazy racist in this cast yeah so the moment that the predator becomes the main plot the main threat the movie takes a real left turn in tone and I think in quality, like it goes from being pretty bad to pretty good. And that doesn't seem, that's not logical to me (laughs) that the introduction of an invisible space alien with (laughs) problematic dreadlocks is the thing that makes this better, not worse. It, that that math almost never pencils out, but this is the one no. case where it does. No, it does it doesn't. I mean, but there it is. It became it became good, like genuine suspense. I mean, I'm not saying that the I don't have problems with the rest of the film, but but it but it became intriguing, and there was a lot. I mean, Arnold's the the moment during their raid on the base when Arnold throws a giant knife through the chest of some dude and the camera zooms in on him a little and he goes, stick around. <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 you do not quip your way through this ding dong. He gets quippy for like three minutes and then stops being quippy for the yeah, rest of then, the movie. Then, as soon as they're out of there and the predator enters the scene, those quips go away and the, and the corniness that would even allow for those quips goes away. That whole raid of the compound was shot by the second unit director and not John McTiernan. Oh. And I wonder how much latitude Craig Baxley gave. You're thinking they were improvised? I mean, I we know they're improvised because like it was said so after the fact. Like they like much of the Schwarzenegger dialogue specifically was. Wow. And that instance in in particular. But that guy was hooking up 40 blood packets per dude. (laughs) And when when you have 40 blood packets going off, you have to do one of those death scenes where you shake, rattle, and roll with your hands in the air like, (laughs) because you just, I mean, it takes a minute for all of the explosions to go off. It's fun how they go from real time to slow motion. Like, Like Schwarzenegger is shooting in real time, but his victim is in slow motion. taking the bullets just to be clear i want to make sure i'm clear on something is the pivot that you're describing in this film before or after the raid on the compound after the raid on the compound as they're leaving and the word the words coming down off the radio that like the rebels are closing in and they have to they have to bug out Mm -hmm. there's that moment where uh where billy soul the native american tracker stops and looks up into the trees and stares. And we can see that we can see from the alien's perspective that he's scanning him. And there's that moment where he he now is recognizing the presence of not just like something's weird in the forest, but he is sensing the presence of a of a thing, of a adversary. From that moment on, first of all, the rebels never appear as a threat again. The rebels who were supposedly closing in, they're just divorced from the plot. And we have a we have the team being pursued by the predator. 
and it's unclear where exactly what extraction point they're headed to. At at one point, at one point, I think um, Mac says to Blaine, he's like, "I've never been in a jungle like this. Is the craziest jungle I've ever been in." It's like, <laughs> "Oh, this is amazing jungle. What's it? Oh, crazy jungle." I've seen and some mean he, bush. <laughs> <laughs> and then the absolute next se- next cut is Carl Weathers dragging uh, their female captive, Anna. He's taking her through this self-same jungle, and they're absolutely on a garden path. Like, you can just see that they're walking along like a graded yeah. gravel. And it's like, wow, that is some thick jungle. <laughs> One thing I will say about that <laughs> is that... There is a ton of Steadicam happening throughout the jungle, especially especially at its most frenetic when people are running around, that graded or not, these guys are running in the jungle with their actors. And I cannot imagine in the heat of a jungle, carrying a camera, trying not to run into anything or fall down, how difficult that is. And it happens constantly in this film. And this is early Steadicam, right? Yeah. So it's all real heavy stuff. Yeah, and long takes too. It's never not moving. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like from that moment on, the movie like really becomes a different animal. It's almost like the alien invades a worse movie. <laughs> it is. Uh, the alien shows up and he's like, this movie sucks. <laughs> Watch this trick. <laughs> I'm going to eviscerate the red shirt and then everybody's going to be on notice. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. What I like about Dylan is that he doesn't go full Burke, right? Like, he always needs to prove himself to someone who was his friend. He's not trying to study the Predator and bring it back home. No, he's just as, he's just as blindsided by this as everybody. Yeah. Right. He's, in fact, the doubter. Yeah. I think that, like, the other, I mean, like, knowing the the genesis of this film, like, the idea that it's not from the alien's perspective is is interesting, like... There's an amount of restraint in not 
showing too much about the predator or what the predator is early on that uh you know is is smart and and helps it helps make the payoff more satisfying when it starts to become the main thing that they're worried about carl weathers represents a perspective that we're starting to see over and over and over again in late 80s early 90s war films which is anti-bureaucracy the rat fuck of bureaucracy itself the idea that you're doing something for a noble reason that is instead a switcheroo or you're going into a circumstance that you think you'll have backup for and they fucking leave you for dead right and one of the things that you said a long time ago, John, on the show that was so interesting was that like the th- one of the things America does best is bureaucracy. Or maybe it was you, Ben, but it was like it was like no matter what if you're wronged, there is an administrative channel to go through to uh to have your circumstance righted. And you never see that perspective in a war film. Bureaucracy is always a thing that fucks you. And I wonder. You always have to unload the uh, the uh, chain of ordinance yeah. into the computer. It makes me wonder, like, for a generation of people who went to watch movies and saw this fuck happen over and over again, to what degree that engendered a distrust of a bureaucracy that that we were meant to trust. Yeah, like what was in the water in the 80s that all filmmakers turned on the idea of civilians running the military or whatever? All of these movies are reactions to our experience in Vietnam. And the only way the American people could process our defeat in Vietnam was the narrative that our civilian leaders had abandoned our military. And that the military itself was noble and had only been doing their jobs and they were just our boys who could have won and were winning and did win if it weren't for those contemptible politicians. And those politicians personified in the form of not them, not the politicians themselves, but the the conniving staffer, the um, the Princeton-educated, cynical uh, poll taker, who was secretly making decisions, and this was the this was the logic that we went into the '80s with, because nobody could just, I mean, you couldn't stand up and say we lost in Vietnam because it was an, an insurgent war, and we were fighting a tank war. And insurgents will win if they are on their home turf and they have a reason to fight. Why blame the middle manager instead of McNamara and Johnson? Like, I, it seems easier to place the blame on fewer people. Well, because this was like we were coming out of the era of conformity and the late 60s, early 70s introduced this era of nonconformity where the nonconformist became the hero, the anti-hero was the was the hero, and the conservatives and I think the the um, the hawks had the had the good sense to seize upon the anti-hero as representing the hawkish position, right? Like what makes Rambo so appealing to America in nineteen 
82 or 84 is that he's the bad guy, but his, or I mean, he's like the, he's against the establishment and yet. Yeah. Like if, if Rambo came to your town and did that to your town, you'd be fucking pissed at Rambo, not at Sheriff Teasel. <laughs> well, and Rambo going back to Vietnam to, to rescue our soldiers and yet hey, he's he was just supposed to take pictures <laughs> we but all he, know that but he's fighting the system you know like that's such a fucking switcheroo that got played on everybody it's a hell of a combination and so that's extending i mean this the predator is not that long after and it's still really steeped in this logic that it's the the bad guys back in Washington that keep us from, I don't know what, like flexing over the whole world, basically just laying our dicks down on the foreheads of everybody <laughs> and saying like America, which I think was like the, that was the goal for that whole generation that felt ashamed that we hadn't, I don't know what, turned Vietnam into a mall or whatever the goal was stop communism and which we which we did like 2 years later not we did but but Arnold Schwarzenegger know, but did Arnold Schwarzenegger personally did <laughs> but all of that it was such a it was it made so much sense to people at the time because it was an emotional appeal to what should have been a pretty clear cut understanding just like post world war 1 the reason we lost in Vietnam was that we were fighting an asymmetrical war and it turned out the asymmetry did not benefit us. And it's just like, basically when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan, it was essentially a Maginot line we'd been building the whole time. No, 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 no. We're doubling down on tank wars against a people that are going to come out of their house, fire a rocket and go back into their house. Um, and, you know, here we are, right, still there almost 20 years later, which none of which has anything to do with Predator, except that Predator lands square in the middle of that, of the twistedness of that logic. I mean, we have not come very far from there either, right? I mean, we just watched Green Zone not too long ago. That same anti-bureaucratic tension remains. Well, now it's baked into our understanding of how the world works. Yeah. Yeah, we cannot possibly you cannot no matter what side of the political divide you're on, you cannot possibly make an argument publicly that Washington is doing good work for the most part, that our government is functioning pretty well for the most part. Who who find a find a living person that will stand up and say, actually, the United States of America is run pretty well. I can think of only one person. <laughs> <laughs> That stands to benefit from an argument like that. Um, well, right, right. Uh, Please direct all your correspondence to fuckyou at <laughs> gmail.com. It's sad. I mean, this this country is a student with so much potential, you know, but it keeps flicking paper footballs at the teacher and getting sent to detention. I resemble that remark. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on a broke dick dog. You know, the, the jungle setting, you know, while it's not Vietnam... Uh, evokes Vietnam and a lot of the films that we've watched that are set there and the you know the styling of of the guys feels very Vietnam era they're not like future soldiers or anything like that I wonder was there ever a thought to to set this anywhere else because it's not easy to shoot in a jungle you know like a jungle is a pain in the fucking ass to shoot in 
for a lot of reasons, you know. Ben, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was how much respect you have for the gaffers <laughs> in this film, because this, I thought the film was impeccably lit Yeah, in some super difficult circumstances. I mean, it, the number of difficult shots in this film that they pull off perfectly is incredible. Like, I was really caught up with all the ones where they'd like slide down a hill and it would, you know, the camera would be moving with the, with the actor in the tumble down the hill. Yeah. And uh and it would be perfectly lit. Like there the one of the biggest challenges with a jungle is that you've either got shade or bright light. You know, there's like and the shade is super dark compared to the bright light. And so you've got a problem of are your actors gonna look like they're in a dense jungle, in which case they have shade on them, but everything with light on it in the background is going to be white. <laughs> or you know, like that that is a uh, a very tricky challenge, a very tricky needle to thread, and they and they really do it here. I think on that note, you know, a lot of a lot of complaints I think uh, from African American actors is that their skin pigmentation has this problem. If if you if your lighting is appropriate, benefiting white actors, a lot of times you can lose a lot of definition in a in a black face. Sure. And Bill Duke is particularly dark-skinned, and he is lit beautifully yeah. in this movie. Like every shot, you see, you see his face so full, you know, so like perfectly lit. And that had to be that ha- that was done so well that it had to have been a, a special point of pride on behalf of lighting and the gaffers. Because it's, uh, I noticed it like three or four times. Like, wow, that is that's good filmmaking. And just to be clear, I mean this is a total compliment. Bill Duke is Forrest Whitakering in this movie. Like, he's not expressing a ton of emotion, but when he decides to go there, when he finally goes dark emotionally, it is truly terrifying to watch. I think he's great in this movie. He's he's kind of got the hardest acting challenge of anybody because we we see him get truly unhinged over the course of the film and he's he's kind of I, I think he's like one of the few classically trained actors in the film he's uh he's really terrific and really takes takes you on a journey well and that's the that I mean the first 20 minutes of this movie or the first half hour whatever however much it is up until that up until after the raid Bill Duke is playing a really, really wooden cardboard cutout role of just the hard bitten black guy that doesn't laugh, who showed up in a suit and who thinks Jesse Ventura is a dork and is just there like doing his job (laughs) or whatever, you know, like it's a one note role. But then all of a sudden he transforms into the heart and soul of the movie. Like you were saying, Adam, the, the emotion that he goes through, it turns out he loves Jesse Ventura's character like a brother he's been in the shit but he's still alive inside and then he he is so affected by the death around him and his response is is to go into this kind of mad violence but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel unreal I I mean he is the that role went from two dimensions to four dimensions yeah Blaine and Max relationship was 
felt lived in yeah and surprising initially when blaine spits on carl weathers's boot in the helicopter i was like I've seen this film a thousand times, right. but like the implication of that is that Blaine is a racist. Yeah, he's a Southern chewing tobacco. But he's not a racist. He's an anti-bureaucrat. Yeah, man. I mean, he could be both. <laughs> find yourself a mercenary that can be both. Yeah. Find find yourself a guy that looks at you like Blaine looked at Carl Weathers' boots. <laughs> but it's Max Grief that... That makes the case for something more there, something different. Yeah. You said mercenary, Adam, and that made uh, that brings up a point I wanted to dig into a little bit. Are these guys government employed? Are they are they like some kind of special forces unit, or are they guns for hire? Because you know Dylan is definitely CIA, and when when they come in, it seems like Duke is the you know the head of the team, but has has some kind of capacity to like accept or turn down assignments. You know, they're like, well, you know, well, why didn't you come to Libya? And he's like, well, I'm not an assassin. I'm a, I'm a, we're a rescue team. I can't imagine that SEAL Team 6 gets like, uh, hey, do you guys uh, got any interest in, uh, in doing a bin Laden raid or, uh, or not? <laughs> I mean, boy, that kind of cuts both ways, right? They're good enough to where they have turned down authority <laughs> is something that interests me. But I think they're, they they refer to each other and they act in according to their rank in such a way that I, I just feel like they could be nothing else but actual elite military. Well, now think about and this. And not mercenaries. The, the real rise of special forces as a thing, Delta Force, SEALs, you know, they'd always kind of existed as a, SEALs had for a while. But most of that, uh, the the centralization of that command happened after the the bungled uh, Iran hostage raid. They had a big clusterfuck out there in the desert. Everybody got killed, and after that, special forces became a like a unified command. And the sense in this movie, for me at least, was that you know definitely like. Most of these dudes were Vietnam era soldiers. They all had some Vietnam story. And so I had a sense that they were sort of a nascent special forces group that had survived the transition to a professionalization of special forces. They were some kind of American dirty ops because Schwarzenegger at one point says, we're in the rescue, we're in the search and rescue business um, and not assassins. You know, I'm ready to, I'm ready to get with you on that, but because there's no mention of a financial implication to this, that's, that's why I can't, right? That they're making money. Yeah. Because to be mercenary means doing it for money. And I can't get with uh, Schwarzenegger on being strictly rescue given the way he decided to start attacking that camp <laughs> just like yeah right <laughs> indiscriminately drive an explosive truck into a hut full of people <laughs> well here's the thing like in defense of dutch in that moment uh this was just after they found the three skinned green berets and after he saw another green beret executed what are you down saying there. that this was get back no i'm saying that the rescue operation was over as soon as people began 
getting executed. Like, it's sort of the thing where when hostages are taken and start to get killed, you need to go in and rush. Like, you cannot, there's no time to negotiate anymore. You need to be in, in life-saving mode. And I think that's what that was. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that there is a, you know, like... <laughs> that was such a great shut the fuck a- up, Adam, right there. <laughs> the implied shut the fuck up, I heard it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, anyway, moving right along. Uh, there is within the special forces, right, the Air Force special forces are, you know, everybody's got their special forces, but the Air Force has... um. Like they are, in their very name, are described as rescue parachutists, um, and they're just they're just special forces. But they're but they're tasked with the idea of going behind enemy lines and rescuing downed pilots or something like that. So there is a there is some. And I think there's a Vietnam lineage to this too. Uh, s- uh, groups of special forces operatives whose main job is to go rescue soldiers that are lost. And that would explain why they these guys got the job because supposedly a helicopter went down with these VIPs and they were going to go pull them out. So it is a specialized job within the special forces community to go rescue your guy who got lost. And I guess within that, operation you're allowed to expend all remaining ordinance on any dude standing in a watchtower who happens to be coated in kerosene they do expend all remaining ordinance in this movie (laughs) how many bullets could they possibly have been packing in relative to the number of bullets that actually got got fired in this movie (laughs) (laughs) when when mac when mac picks up blaine's minigun yeah and empties the entire ordinance into the jungle. Empties. I think I think he says two hundred is the full mag, and he said he he emptied all of it into the jungle. But that he's firing that minigun like he emptied an A ten warthog's worth of bullets out yeah. of that thing, and then did it again. You know they needed to slow down the minigun to make it film effective. They I think they ran it at a third speed. Oh, because if it was really going, it initially it was- rotates far faster, but the camera couldn't pick it up. So they slowed down its rate of fire and also its rotation. I, I should say on behalf of the guy that does guns of friendly fire on our Facebook page, uh, who always picks some cool gun and, and breaks it down, on his behalf I should say that the minigun is not a gun that you can carry as a single soldier. This was the first time it was made into one. That's this film, and it's, then it was made, and then it became that it's in super action hot. films after. I have to say, like really hot uh, innovation in war movie times to put a minigun on a on a some kind of uh, <laughs> crazy, like uh, like the kind of cage that you would get if you broke every bone in your body, except you're carrying it around as a. But you know, in order to operate a minigun, you need a power source. You need like a basically a generator <laughs> which they, they didn't show them also schlepping well they just around. cut that part out but <laughs> very the cool gun honda <laughs> two-stroke generator <laughs> 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 uh 
yeah, very, very cool gun. Very into it as a special effect, but it's not a gun that you can use that way. Very best day is. It's so different from any other weapon in any other war film. It's almost not even a gun. It's like a force of nature. It's like a hose. Yeah. It's like a piece of construction equipment that just pushes over trees. It's amazing. I can't imagine like what, did you see this film in the theater? Oh yes. I can't imagine watching this for the first time and seeing the film debut of the minigun as a handheld weapon. It was super good. I mean, this was, I was at an age where I still really spent a lot of time thinking about what kind of gun I would pick (laughs) if I had, if we were living in a gun, if we were living in a slightly more gun-toting culture. That's hard to imagine. (laughs) I definitely, for a while there, my ambition was to become a bush pilot. That was my, that was my job of choice. And I definitely planned to carry a gun in a shoulder holster. You could turn a grizzly into an aerosol with one of those. (laughs) That wouldn't fit into a uh, into a shoulder holster, and I think if you mounted one under the nose of a Super Cub, it would just pull the Super Cub apart. Yeah, because the Super Cub's made of balsa wood and tissue paper. Can you imagine but, piling into the back of John's bush plane, Adam, and having having this be the guy that you're going to share conversation with on your way out to <laughs> some fucking water hole in Alaska? <laughs> I had mirrored sunglasses and a little <laughs> Frenchy mustache. I intended to wear a beret and carry a, a carry a forty four mag and a shoulder holster. Speaking of fake French accent, it's great about a bush plane is that they're so loud that if you don't want to talk to your uh, companion inside, you just take off your headset. Take off the headset. That's right. So where are you guys going today? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that whole scene where everybody on the squad empties all of their weapons uh, at three times those weapons capacity into the jungle at that one at that one location, and they're just mowing it down. But we, as the viewers, understand that the predator lives in the trees, so they are wondering how anything could survive this onslaught, and yet we know that the predator just went up 10 feet and was completely out of their cone of fire. It's a great payoff because we kind of established all the rules of that in the scene when they find the, the strung up special forces guys, they're like finding all the, all the shell casings, but no, you know, they didn't, they shot in every direction, but they can't find any evidence that they were shooting at anybody. No, no footprints, no blood, no anything. And then we get to see them fall into the same trap, you know. When Hawkins dies first, he's strung up so high, and it's so early on in the film that they don't even think to look for him in the canopy. And they never find him. Yeah. Gone too soon. We barely knew him. Oh, Hawkins. Hawkins uh, <laughs> Hawkins, notable for his terrible jokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and his giant glasses, right? Like, uh, right. Those were not military issue glasses. No, that was a distinguishing feature. Yeah, those were those took the uh, took birth control glasses to a new level. <laughs> but Hawkins, <laughs> Hawkins is the one guy on the cast that really is committed to films. Like he directed the latest Predator movie, but he also directed Lethal Weapon and Lethal Weapon Two. Oh no, he wrote he wrote Lethal Weapon. That's what it yeah. is. He wrote The Last Action Hero. He did uh, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, and The Nice Guys. 
Uh, and he made Iron Man 3, hmm. which is what really put him in the pantheon of the greats. <laughs> That's why they say Kubrick and Spielberg and Shane Black. Yeah. I wish we got more Billy Hawkins friendship, the way that we did the uh, the Mac Blaine friendship. Yeah, Hawkins because, just died so early that we didn't really get that, but I did really enjoy the tension of like everyone's got that friend that you can't make laugh, and the fact that like Hawkins is just needling Billy over and over again, and when he finally breaks, that moment is like a dam breaking. That laugh is so big. Yeah, it's really fun. I liked that too. What made uh, the aliens magic trick so unique was that its ensemble was so large and their characters I felt like were developed independently without the necessity of each other to create them. Predator feels like a film with a third as many characters and they need their interplay to give us some sort of character foundation which is an easier thing to pull off and I don't feel like it does that entirely. We don't know any of these guys the way we know anyone in Aliens. No, we don't know how they are at home. Yeah. Thanks. Anytime. The introduction of the Anna Gonzalez character, when she is brought into the team by Dylan, it's maybe the most egregious Rambo moment in the film it's at the it's it's during the corniest sequence you're not gonna say schwarzenegger covering himself in mud (laughs) (laughs) no i loved that that was you know that was actually like plot that's a first blood part two rhyme he's biting you can't do that but schwarzer but uh but stallone wasn't doing it to hide from an infrared yeah uh super monster suit maybe he had just seen first blood and he was like hey that's a good idea yeah this wasn't set in the past this was set in contemporary times this is first blood and Rambo are part of this universe. But anyway, <laughs> just to be clear, Rambo turns into Mudman in First Blood Part 2. Right? Okay. Which you're, came out in what year? You're saying First Blood over and over again. That's what he said. I didn't say First Blood. Well, I'm talking I'm <laughs> referencing all the trap building. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, the there's trap a building. there's a ton of home aloneing happening toward the end of this film. <laughs> well, they they definitely make like like spikes out of you know, carved pieces of wood and then, you know, pull down trees to put tension in their trunks. That's a lot of first blood shit. No one ever ripped up a t-shirt and made it into a headband. (laughs) (laughs) What this film doesn't give us is a Troutman figure. The guy that trained the predator. You don't want to go in there and (laughs) I trained him. Seriously, the reason that we know John Rambo can improvise weapons is because Troutman tells us that he can do that. And so when Dutch does it at the end, it comes out of of nowhere to me. Like, he's making a bow and arrow. And that was a pretty good make a bow and arrow scene, I have to say. That arrow flew like six feet. (laughs) Well, I know, but the making of the bow was cool. Like, he was making a compound bow out of sticks. Yeah. And I was like, okay, all right. I'm following, and then it shows up, and it's like, all right. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not besmirching the quality of his of, bow. of his construction. What I'm saying is that it doesn't do a great job of setup and payoff the way other war slash action films do. Yeah, it never teased that ability. 
I love that you're using Rambo as an example of a great film that really paid off. <laughs> it's an example of a technique of of just teasing something early that comes around later. Right. I mean, they're they're repping total competence. Like they're the ultimate special forces. Yeah, dudes. you have to assume that this was always on the menu. Yeah, I mean it. The the scenes where he takes the little rifle propelled grenades and takes them apart and gets their gunpowder out in order to make a bomb out of a leaf, it was unclear to me what was going on there exactly. Why the leaf bomb was better than just the some other way of incorporating that bomb. Um, but I didn't spend I didn't like linger on that doubt. Uh, the predator blood was KY and what are those flicker sticks? Glow, the, glow sticks? Yeah, glow stick. Raver sticks. Glow stick blood and KY jelly was the predator blood on the leaves. It's a hell of a combination. I think that this movie kind of presages something interesting with the POV shots from the predator. We've talked a little bit about how every time you see the green on black night vision it immediately puts you in an era. Oh, we're watching something that is Gulf War One or more contemporary than that, right? And uh, and this kind of kind of pre-imagines that. I think that uh, you know that technology existed at this point, but it wasn't something that they could do in high definition on thirty-five millimeter film in a economically viable way. So they. Uh, the way they did this was they had like a beam splitter where they captured film footage of the thing that the predator is looking at and also like video level heat signature footage and then like comped them together and like rotoscoped out the stuff that they didn't want to be glowing. Wow. Some of that stuff really played well in theaters like the the way the predator was was masked by mirror uh effect somehow yeah that was uh the way they did that was they so so the predator was like a a red suit and and then they they shot plates of everything on multiple different focal lengths of lens which is why there's this kind of like concentric rings it's like slightly wider or more uh, or tighter lenses being comped in where the red suit got got uh, cut out. In 87, it was a special effect that you hadn't seen before, and it didn't look animated, which is how they would have done it before that. It looked somehow like a real space technology. Yeah, it really holds say up. That, like the, the effect holds up. The place that it doesn't is when they, uh, is when they go slow motion with it, and that's just a byproduct of the ramp. It's not... A product of the effect. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I'm. I'm with you guys. The one thing. Great. The one thing that didn't hold up was sometimes within the Predator's POV there was a kind of heads up display that was a little bit like the Terminator, sort of like fuck you, asshole. <laughs> that little thing, except it basically used a special effect that was taken straight from the Tempest video game which is a video game that neither of you guys would remember, but there are some olds listening to the program who are like, oh, I love Tempest, brah. <laughs> but uh, Tempest was like one of these 
8-bit. Sounds like these olds you're talking about are real SoCal server dudes. Well, most of them joined the military. That's why they're listening to the show. They're all, <laughs> <laughs> they're all, they're all majors right now, and they didn't pass their lieutenant colonel exam, so uh-huh. they're just waiting out the rest of their career. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was one little bit of video. Because I, I think this movie, if it came out today, minus a couple of uh, little things that wouldn't appear in a movie now, a lot of it would just be still good. Uh, but there's there's that little one Tempest video effect that I was like, oh, no. I found it a little hard to follow what was going on in the heat vision stuff. Like, I think it it's a pretty good effect, but it's hard to imagine an advanced alien being, you know, their visual acuity being as limited as that appears to be. I, I kind of felt like they wrote around that a little bit just that he was he had an ability to look at that which we could not interpret and see but you know they they talked in, to, in future predator movies they answer that question there are a number of modes that he can see with uh, that defend against the idea of well if he's only seeing in infrared how could he see tripwires which he clearly does but they, in but, this film but he is able to see all of that because he sees in a number of different spectrums you only get the one that you get in this film Schwarzenegger did in the movie say that he could see that the predator clearly could see metal tripwires but not ones made out of uh, plants like um, vines mm-hmm. so all of their like boy scout traps were vine operated and that's why the predator got snagged so yeah he he, there there were some problems the predator had some disadvantages i really loved the predator heartbeat and how it sounded like an action film score it sounded like this the theme to conan like it, it was propulsive that was like arrhythmic what did it sound like i didn't recognize it as his heartbeat yeah, I mean, whenever they snap into his vision, was that not the sound that we're hearing? It's like that. Yeah. Oh, oh. I thought that was just his theme music. Oh, no, I I mean, maybe maybe that's what it was supposed to be. No, I like it better as his heartbeat. Yeah. What do we make of the Predator as a creature design? This is a Stan Winston jam. Unfortunately for me, I hate it. I don't like that it's a man in a rubber suit. I don't like, I mean, he's he's just a big dude, but he has like Muppet hands. <laughs> I, I don't look, like the fact that he looks like John Travolta in the movie about Scientology aliens, right? He's got dreadlocks, yeah. which in 1987 is a way of making him other by virtue of just making him a Rastafarian. Yeah. White white guy like, dreadlocks were not the thing then that they are now. Is that what you're saying? Well, or just like I, that, that, that feels, I mean, you know, the, you know, the universe that they created around the uh, Matrix movies where basically like. You're saying this is stolen Rasta? I mean, there's some stolen Rasta there. But, like, there's got to be another way to make somebody seem like they're from another planet other than just making them a brother from another planet. I understand, like, you're viewing this creature design through a contemporary lens, but could you put yourself back in 87? I did. And, like, is it defensible in 87? No, even then. It, uh, the thing is, it's not... Def- it's not. Stan Winston did say something, like, explicitly racist about 
Rastafarians in describing how he came up with the character design in the uh, oh, in no. the featurette. Yeah, so I don't think it's and really I don't defensible. Know Stan Winston. Yeah, <laughs> I I wouldn't. I mean, we now look at that and critique it that way. But at the time, I think my critique of it was it's just not other enough. Like, like you can't do a, you can't just put your imaginarium to work a little bit harder and come up with something else like a I don't know what like little tentacles for hair or something why does it just got to be braids well yeah i mean like hr giger came up with something that was other enough and wasn't you know yeah specifically you know referencing just a different culture from that of its creator so i didn't i didn't think that was good but also the mandibular face at the end when he takes the mask off it just felt a little bit it felt a little bit like, well, he's a human. It felt a little Star Trek, frankly. Like, he's a human, but we've got... What makes him an alien is he's got sideburns. <laughs> you know, like, like that's the thing about the Star Trek universe is like, oh, well, this guy's from a completely different planet, but he's got bumps on his nose, so he's a UFO. And That's this how they talk in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Star Trek, and I'm one of the talkers. But so, so they had the technology to give this guy like little wing flaps, but I didn't see those mandibles as being particularly functional. Like how did he bite into things with those that were different than at least the alien has an extra mouth that's inside the mouth that goes out and bites apples and stuff. Like makes it good at bobbing for apples on Halloween. <laughs> did it neutralize the threat of the predator for you in a way like do you need to suspend your disbelief in order to to be appropriately scared by the predator there, there i don't was, know what it i'm trying to defend it because yeah. to me i felt like like the predator as a thing as a as a person was appropriately scary and effective in in its menace and how it looked Ah, uh, you know, I, I think that part of it is that I, I was wrapped up in the predator's motivation. And I think in 1987, I didn't fully compare it to just, just one of the, you know, like Donald Trump Jr. shooting lions in Africa. At the time I saw the movie, I was like, well, why is this sport for this guy? Why would he come all this way to shoot people if he was invisible and had a laser cannon? What fun is that? But then when I realized big game hunters basically do the same thing, they just hide behind a tree a hundred yards out and shoot animals with high caliber weapons and think like, I did it. I killed him. <laughs> so I, so I feel like, uh, I feel like this time through, I recognized, Oh, this does qualify as sport for the predator. Cause there is enough risk to him that it's a game. Especially when the predator chucks his equipment and decides to go hand to hand like that was a respect knuckles move yeah hard to imagine don jr doing anything like that ever if he was 50 feet away from a from his depends <laughs> he would be consumed by an anxiety attack no i just feel like there is i don't know what i wanted from the predator to make it more scary without being more horrifying and I feel like there was something in the design that was meant to like I'm not so scared by horror as much as I am by something that's that seems like genuinely scary and I guess his mandibles 
I didn't see what, what kind of food he was meant to eat with those such that they seem dangerous to me. Those mandibles just seem delicate. Hmm. And not he, if he had tried to bite me with those, I would have, I, I think it would have done more damage to him. This is just occurring to me that we talked a little bit about the, uh, the vagina dentata in uh, our donor bonus Starship Troopers episode. Donor bonus. <laughs> and the, uh, Boy, the, the predator's mouth is that, isn't it? You guys are just seeing dangerous vaginas every movie we watch, huh? <laughs> no, ben and I have had different life experience than you, Adam. Clearly. Dangerous Vaginas wow. was our uh, our music project that uh, we worked on for a few years in the 90s. It never went anywhere because as the bass player, I did not want to go on tour. Come on in. All painless is waiting. In spite of stan winston's questionable reasons for the dreads what i do want to say is that the their movement as the predator navigates the treetops adds like a an elegance to it like a practiced elegance a a more cat-like smoothness to his movements that i think you lose without them like I think it really does do the creature service to have something flowing from him, whether or not those are those are his dreads or not. Yeah. Like I think I think it really helps the look and feel of the of the creature as it as it moves up along the canopy. I agree with that. And I'm glad that they're there. It's unfortunate that they're there for <laughs> bad reasons, maybe, but I think they're cool. They could have been like birthday party streamers or like the the spinal cords of forest creatures or something. I'm just down with Ja also. <laughs> yeah, you are, I know. I and I. <laughs> also, I have to say that by the end of the movie, the Predator seemed to be collecting skulls as uh, trophies for his trophy case. But the first eight people we see skinned alive and hung from trees still have their skulls. Yeah. So but maybe they're not worthy of being trophies. You really want to be skull worthy, right? Yeah. If you're going to get killed, are you, you saying you that, just hope yeah. that yours is the skull he picks? <laughs> he's, he's stripping their skin off, but he, he's like, I only take the skull of a guy that had a minigun. Maybe he wanted to make a uh, special forces suit. Oh, you, you're kind of a big girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was really nostalgic watching this film for the idea of the R-rated science fiction film. Because when the Predator turns Billy's body into basically a mace with a skull at the end of it, that is no less affecting <laughs> right now. That is a holy shit yeah. moment. I you just don't get that anymore. There is no amount of violence left unturned by this movie. I mean, <laughs> there is, there is gore. There is super gore. I mean, comparing this to Starship Troopers, the gore in Starship Troopers is like there's a lot of dismemberment. Everybody gets covered in green or orange goo at one point or another. Yeah, it all feels kind of rubbery, but the the violence in this movie and just this pure amount of evisceration and just like awful, awful, awful death. It really had to set a new standard. And I think there was a lot of criticism about, because this was the era where gratuitous violence was, was really being debated on the floor of Congress and stuff. Right. Uh, this was the dawn of this kind of mind blowing 
violence because we talked about the violence and gore in RoboCop, but there's more violence and more exploding bodies in this movie. But the violence is in service of the hunt. Like Billy's body is cleaned like a fish. It's not just like pornographic desecration of a body for for like the love of doing it. Like there is a there is a fucked up hunter cleaning his kill reason for this happening. And that almost like forgives it. Yeah. It no. makes it less pornographic, I think. <clears throat> it's plot it's more part of the plot, yeah. It changed colors. Like the chameleon. The character arc of Anna Gonzalez or the played by Elpidia Carrillo. She is in another way kind of like Mac, a character that makes the transition from a really bad movie to a really good movie. Because when she's originally captured, she is 100% like what mean expendable Rambo <laughs> version of, first of all, the only woman that we see in the entire film yeah. uh, does not need to be incorporated into the group except Carl Weathers has some really flimsy reason why she's got all the information that he needs. Did you recognize her as Maria from Salvador? Absolutely. That was great to see her again. Great she has had a huge and long career. She works. And this is, you know, the, she's pretty young in this movie. And so for the first 25% of her time on screen, she's just dead weight. She's just a reason. I don't know. You know, we're not given a reason to care about her. She's just the person that's trying to escape that causes problems. She's the first person that's actually witnessed the predator. And that's, is that when, she, I think that's when she reveals that she speaks English. A little bit later. She reveals uh, only when Schwarzenegger starts to interrogate her. But from that point, from the point at which she reveals she speaks English, all of a sudden her character becomes also a fully fledged person and a really like dynamic presence in the movie that you never, I never would have expected from her introduction. She's really great. Her character serves a very specific purpose, which is she gets to tell the, on a night, like, just like this story, she kind of tells the large Marge story right. from, from Pee Wee. Like there is, there has been a legacy to this up till now. And this is a legend that she shares with them. This guy comes only on the hottest yeah. years and he hunts humans for trophies. Yeah. And we're all going, oh. <gasps> Yeah. This is the chupacabra. She is great. Dutch finally makes it out, but but she's the one that kind of makes it out unscathed. Yeah. That's a great point because I feel like Dutch is on the copter, but he's never the same in the way that uh, Anna is able to live on. Right. It's covered with all that ash at the end. Dude, Predator dude set off a tactical nuke. <laughs> So he's not just covered with ash. I got the feeling that he was, he had about a week to live. Yeah, he's got to start taking iodine tablets immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of that copter at the end, uh, I found a uh, moment of pedantry from the internet. Would you guys like to hear it? 
Yes, please. Last scene of the movie. Come on, do it. <laughs> We're right here. Dunk on the chopper. <laughs> when the helicopter is flying out of the jungle, the aircraft has its anti-collision lights on. This is standard oh, peacetime operations, but no military pilot would fly into a hot territory with them turned on as they are designated specifically to draw attention to the exact location oh. of the aircraft. So annoying. <laughs> Can't do that. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, this, that movie, this movie just lost at least one and a half of whatever Adam's ratings are. Turn them off! Come on! <laughs> <laughs> That's too bright! <laughs> um, uh, Kevin Peter Hall plays the pilot of that helicopter, uh, and he's also the, the guy in the Predator suit. Oh, nice. Yeah, he, he got a little screen time for his real face. Yeah. All seven feet of him, they folded him into that chopper. <laughs> I know. You know, they rack the seat all the way back, right? Yeah. Yeah. Him getting into that chopper must feel like what it's like when I get into our car after my wife has been driving it and pushed the seat yeah. all the way forward and all the way up. That's a thing. <laughs> I see. Well, is this a war movie? It has politics and soldiers. It has heroes and strategy. And it's a conflict where death is on the line. And I think in totality, that has to make this a war film, right? For a film that really culminates in just like two, like a guy fighting an alien, like even that feels like it is at the scale of as big a battle as we've seen in... Uh, the movies we've reviewed you know like the number of explosions that we see go off the you know when the camera goes wide and just the entire sky is full of of sparks raining down from the explosions up in the trees it is huge and epic <laughs> it's almost terrible that the thing that finally does the predator in is just a log falling on its head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, USA, humans. <laughs> humans did it again. Were you satisfied with that? I think that we've found as we've gone through the show that there is a there's a problem with with the extension of the franchise of war that we're kind of, we've been wrestling with quite a bit, but the more I reflect on it, the more I see that the, the parallel in real life is that we've lost a real sense of what a war is in real life. Um, and I think this movie took place during a time and this movie is set in a setting that kind of was maybe the beginning of that era. It, it was set in the jungle both to evoke Vietnam, but also because this was the era where we were at war in the jungles of Central America with foes that were, I mean, we had alliances with bad actors. It wasn't clear who the enemies were. We were fighting on behalf of dictators against rebels who maybe were Marxists. Both sides maybe were drug dealers. Um, this was the this was the beginning of like what exactly is a war being fought by special forces in a country where we never declare it. We don't even declare it as a police action. It's just we have soldiers fighting in little Angolas all around the world. Yeah, 
And there's that, there's a little throwaway line at the beginning where they say something about the minister. Does the minister have a habit of crossing borders or whatever? Like that's even just like a Cambodia reference, right? Like the idea that the war doesn't even really care where it is. It's just going to happen one way or another. And so except for the fact that the main enemy in this is a, is an alien from the standpoint of the guys on the ground, they think they're fighting rebels up until the point that the alien reveals itself. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like there, I feel like that all is a case for this being in the war movie family beyond just like we're fighting an alien, but, but into this extension of war now is not clear cut. Enemies are not fully understood. Wars are being waged by contractors who are making decisions based on financial gain and personal alliances. So I'm, I'm feeling more and more that this evokes war. Wow. I'm uh, surprised to hear you coming around on this. Maybe someday I'll convince you of some of my theories about Sicario. <laughs> uh, never! <laughs> but I feel this definitely belongs in the, in the pork chop canon of war movie mm, pork chop cannon yum yum <laughs> mm, that's you know when a when a war movie has a minigun and a pork chop cannon that's when you know you <laughs> crossed into into honduras <laughs> that's where you're in hormel country <laughs> one thing that i really liked in this film that i have the feeling that you didn't was the turn to camera credit sequence at the end. <laughs> I love when a movie is self-aware to know it's a movie and then like wink at the audience to say, hey, wasn't that fun? Here's our cast coming out to take a bow. Remember that cool movie you just watched? It broke the spell and broke the tension and it felt great. What did you think about that? I turned it off before the credits. <laughs> Shut up. Did they really like look at the camera and give it the... Two thumbs up? Big mistake. Oh, no. This was the first movie that ever... Oh, no, wait. How dare you? Animal House had the, like, where are they now? Yeah, but this was a, this was a little less than that, though. Because everybody's dead, you know? Wow. Turned it off before the credits. Sorry. What if there was something Sorry. after the credits, I thought you credits, were giving John. the full effort here. Yeah, well, I just didn't... I thought, you know... I guess I should have sat and like applauded all the gaffers. You missed the part where Ferris Bueller comes out after the credits and says, what are you still doing here? It's over. <laughs> Go home. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched this movie in the bathtub, which is where I watch a lot of the movies. <laughs> and by that point, the bath was cold and you got all wrinkly. I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I'm personally offended. I'm sorry. I'll go watch the credits right now. I don't feel like we can really interrogate that moment without you. <laughs> ben, what did you think of that moment? I liked it. You know, for a movie where almost every character buys it, it's really fun to see their faces one more time, you know? Because I feel like we do, you know, develop some affection for everybody that's not Jesse Ventura. Now, come on. <laughs> you, you felt no affection for Jesse Ventura in this film? When uh, when he demonstrated his period-accurate homophobia, I, I was done with him from that moment forward. Uh, I thought about that little um, use of the F word, the other F word. It's interesting how much that locates this movie in a particular time. Because 
up until right about this mid eighties period, although homophobia was what it was in American history and throughout time, um, that word wouldn't have really appeared in a movie. It would have been too profane. Right. Um, and it's use in this movie at the time didn't register as evidence that this character was a hick, uh, homophobe as much as it communicated a kind of like familiar vulgarity. Like, um, it said something different about his character than it would now. Not, not anything defensible. It wasn't a thing where you were meant to like him, but that it was, it was, there's only about 15 years where using that word in that way would have even, would have even happened in a movie. Right. And it's, it's easy from our perspective now where you wouldn't use that word in any context to think that prior to now it was a word in common parlance, but it, but up until 1985, I don't, I, I don't think you'd go back into very many films and find it used. It, it really stands out. It's like, it is it really so does. surprising to hear it. It stands out now for one reason. And I think it would have stood out then for a different reason. Right. Adam, yeah. You know what? I, <laughs> I was reluctant to launch in on this and I think I just will because it's, it's true to my feelings on the matter. I think I watched too many late eighties, early nineties action films for this to move that particular needle with me. This feels like a document of its time in that way that doesn't make it right or good, but uh, it did not resonate with me in the way that it did with you. It seemed like chop busting among a group of fucking assholes, and that was part of the currency in 87, and it sucks, and we've come a long way since then, and that's good. But I did not make a character judgment about Ventura's character in that moment for that reason. It did not diminish him comparatively for that reason. I thought it diminished the film more than it diminished <laughs> the character because like that's it's it's a it's a product of its time. Well, it is character defining, right? Because if Schwarzenegger, the hero, had said it, right, it would have really clanged. Yeah, I don't think so. It it. I think it says a lot then that you would never see that happen. Like Schwarzenegger would have the good sense not to. Well, no hero would. Yeah. So it definitely is like a it, even then would have been. So it was it was meant to be character defining even then it yeah. defined his character in a different way than it would now yeah but it was absolutely supposed to be just like the chewing tobacco and the bush hat a, a way that we saw him because i don't think there's another person in the movie that would have used it except maybe i uh, know i i don't think so i think that he's the one guy that could have that where, where that was appropriate to who he was. You're never going to hear Ferris Bueller say it. <laughs> I mean, they cut that part out. <laughs> During the scene where he, he caught Cameron in a tiger trap, <laughs> was putting bamboo under his fingernails. <laughs> he really did not get along with Charlie Sheen. Oh, yeah. Well, it's review time, guys. It's the moment in the show where we assign a custom rating system to the film we've just discussed. So many things could become that rating for a film like Predator. Pregnant with possible ratings. <laughs> could be could be logs, 
could be nukes, could be mud. I don't know. For me, I feel like the predator rating system is best embodied by uh, the one personal item that uh, that Hawkins brings along with him. I don't feel like every person brings a personal item with. Uh, what do we got? We've got the uh, we've got the Bic razor yeah. that Mac brings. Oh, that's a tough. If you're gonna have one little signature quirk, we've got uh, we've be... got the MTV shirt of yeah. Blaine, but we also have the comic book, right? The comic book that Hawkins brings, the comic book that he needs those giant glasses to read. <laughs> There's the flask. The flask yeah. plays a big role. All great options, but uh, I think my decision rests on the comic book because to me this feels like a very proto-comic book film. The idea of this alien threat, these, these super heroic figures that attempt to kill it, and then, in the tradition of great murder mysteries, one by one, are picked off until we're just left with our hero and our alien. I think, for someone like me, I would want to resent a film for, for biting so many rhymes off of other great films. But the composite of this is so well made that I can't help but love it. It's really and truly a best-of-breed action film. It is a really good war film. And I really love that that it's so, like, for borrowing so much, it still is so new in its depiction of violence, in its anti-bureaucratic take, and how much it holds up in its effects. Like, I, watched, I was fortunate enough to watch this on a great big TV with the sound turned all the way up and it was cinematic in a way I wasn't expecting for an 87 action film. I watched it on my phone in a bathtub, but it was very cinematic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I had all you, the lights off and I was in a full flotation tank. So I watched it in a uh, TV in the back of a airplane seat, the way the director intended. <laughs> yeah. Who misses uh, John McTiernan? I kind of do. <laughs> too bad he paid a guy to wiretap one of his producers. Not a great look, John. <laughs> I'm going to give this four and a half comic books. Whoa! Wow. This is one of my favorite films, but it but I can appreciate that it's not great Jimmy for a Christmas. variety of reasons that we've discussed. We do not compare these films to each other, sure. but I recognize that I gave Aliens a five full things rating, and this is not as good as that film. And I know that. And I know that in my heart that that is what prevents me from filling it up with five comics. So four and a half it is for me. I think it's a pretty great action movie. I think that um, judging it on its own terms, like does it accomplish what it sets out to accomplish? Absolutely. Is it a document of its time with perhaps some of the unfortunate warts of that time visible on it? Yes. But if I'm honest, like, it is always fun to watch this movie. It's weird that a movie that is so gruesome and terrifying can qualify as escapism, but somehow it is. And uh, there are not a lot of movies that really, like, push the envelope as much as this one did. And uh, 
I think it's awesome. I, I'll give it a solid four comic books. Big score. That's a solid rating. I think this is a movie where I, I really have to stress that we are not comparing movies to movies because there are plenty of movies I've given sort of, you know, scores in the, in the middle where I don't think those movies are as good as this one. I do feel like Predator is iconic. I do feel like it's a great watch. It doesn't ask a ton of you. And as long as you're not trying to eat spaghetti while watching it, <laughs> um, you know, you get kind of numbed to the violence. I'm learning more and more about your your bathtub circumstances. Have you never had Have you never had spaghetti with me in the bath? I feel like almost all of my friends have joined me there at least you once. Just, uh, you don't watch the credits. <laughs> You're eating during the movie. My sister just walked it's in disgusting. and made, made a finger down the throat gross out move <laughs> about my spaghetti in a bath. But spaghetti in the bathtub is the best. <laughs> I remember one time I was staying at a guy's house out in Bainbridge Island. And he had a giant octagonal hot tub. Mm. And I made spaghetti and put it in a mixing bowl and put the bowl in the hot tub <laughs> where it just floated. And I turned the jets on and I would sit. And as the bowl of spaghetti would come around, I would take a forkful and eat it. And then the bowl, I put the fork back in the bowl and it would just go slowly around <laughs> the hot tub and then come back around. And I just sat there like in this state of pure just weightlessness like endless spaghetti but i was but i had to moderate it because it the spaghetti was on its own path around the sun wow you know when i permit myself the fantasy of what like being ultra wealthy would be like i think you just described it yeah endless spaghetti in a giant bathtub yeah total relaxation yeah it's not a bentley you don't even have to hold bath. the spaghetti man <laughs> wow anyway <laughs> There are this movie does have a lot of flaws in the first act. Yeah. And a lot of flaws that just naturally put a cap on how much how how many comic books I can give it. Even though the second two thirds of it almost feel like the 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 terrible first act was necessary because it the terrible first act was setting up a world that the that the rest of it like shocked us out of so that we could never go back. At the beginning of this movie it felt like, oh, here we are invading Grenada, <laughs> like a war that we can't lose that feels like a feels like a game where everybody gets shot out of a out of a guard tower and catches on fire. And by the end of this movie we have truly lived through a personal horror and so you could I, I see the case, but I also really feel like it was just a second unit director thinking he was making a different movie and they pieced it together because they'd spent a bunch of money on on gasoline. If only McTiernan had had bugged his phone, <laughs> he would know what that second unit was up to. Not to compare this to other three and a half comic book movies because there have never been. There's right. never been a three and a half comic book I movie. I hate that I even allowed myself to think that. Yeah. But this is, a, I think, a three and a half comic book movie. And I say that with the acknowledgement that I think this is a great movie. It's it's in the pantheon. It, belong, it, it deserves to be preserved by the Library of Congress. But it also is like pretty, pretty flawed internally and could have 
that first act, I think, could have been a little less jokey. I mean, basically, it, I, I ding it half a star just for hang around <laughs> or stick, ar- stick around. I, that's a half a star off right there. Does it get another half a star off when he kicks down that door and says, knock, knock? Yeah, that w- it, would, it would have been a four comic book movie if not for those two Schwarzenegger lines. I don't think you guys realize that you're not allowed to make a movie preview without a line like that. <laughs> they, are, they were legally obligated to include those clips in these films of this era. Knock, knock. No. <laughs> is your guy as interesting as your rating, John? You know, it's crazy given all the criticism that I leveled uh, at Sonny Landham, but my guy is absolutely Billy Soul. I feel like the trope of the Native American tra- tracker is one of the things that comic bookifies this, but by the same token, the character of a tracker who can see things in the jungle that others can't see, I love that character. Yeah. I, we, I wanna be that person. And every time Billy Soul looks off into the trees and is basically looking right at the alien without quite being able to pick him out, it's all great suspense, but it also, it's, it's a kind of character development where we don't need to see his kids back home. We don't, you know, like he doesn't need to laugh at the big pussy jokes. He's got this extrasensory perception. An underrated character moment for Billy is that first one where he's staring into the trees and he gets questioned by, I think it's, I think it's Mac. And he says, it's probably nothing for him to be wrong in that moment really foreshadowed what was to come because there was, there was a certainty about his character throughout that made his doubt seem really foreboding. Yeah. And we don't witness his death. We witness him take off his shirt and say, okay, you and me, alien, mano a mano. Yeah. And then the alien clearly doesn't respect him enough to give him a hand-to-hand death. It's clear that by Billy's like agonizing scream through the jungle that the alien just chopped him with his, uh, with his like Wolverine hand <laughs> and eviscerated him, right? I mean, it's really only Dutch that the alien like re- rewards with face-to-face contact. And that's a little disappointing. It was disappointing to me that Billy didn't get his minute-long wrestling match with the alien, which I was happy for him to lose, but for him to just get sliced, it was another thing where you're just like, oh, this alien is some cold-ass shit. (laughs) I was sorry to see my guy Billy go that way. but It was incredible to see him break because one of the things I thought about when I saw this movie was like, what would it take for you to believe that the predator was real? Because there's moments of doubt for everyone, but Billy in that moment is pushed to the brink where if he were to believe that the predator is real, the only thing he can do is remain on the log. Fight him with a knife. Yeah. That's the only choice he has. Yeah. And that's what he chooses. Yeah. Like he cannot board the helicopter. Such 
Like, like he's been broken so badly by that realization. It made me wonder like what that realization would do to me or you. Were we to actually see a predator? Like does our entire worldview change in such a way that all of a sudden we stand on the log? Like, I'm pretty sure that you would have gotten shot 40 times and fallen out of a guard tower on fire. I think I'm clearly uh, arm shot off while still squeezing the trigger of an assault rifle personally. I'm definitely wearing a knit tie back at the base in some mirrored sunglasses with my feet on a desk Yeah, talking to somebody in Washington. Yeah, That's my job in this movie. What about you, Ben? You uh, try to make a better world with your new alien friend? <clears throat> Uh, <laughs> redistribution of blood. Um, I uh, I picked Poncho as my guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he's very close to being able to make it out, but gets killed at the last minute by the uh, shoulder-mounted beam weapon. Um, the thing, the reason Poncho is my guy is I I really identified with. Uh, you know, he's, he gets very badly injured by another falling log in this film. And, uh, <laughs> like, a thing that brave soldiers do all the time in movies is uh, when they get, you know, mortally wounded, tell people to go go get out of here, like, leave me behind with the, with the bomb or whatever. Not Pancho. He's like, <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> And uh, I was uh, I was like, I am here for that, man. Pancho is saying what I would be saying if I just got walloped by a log. In that same spirit of the things that Pancho says, Pancho is also my guy. Huh. I really liked how he was not a sidekick for anyone, but he was low-key kind of a setup man for other people's quips. Like, he's... He's the guy that makes fun of Blaine for his use of the F word. He's the guy that sets up Billy for his moment to say that, like, he's not afraid of any man, but what's waiting out there ain't no man. Mm. He he makes fun of Blaine again when he's like, he asks him if he has time to duck. Like, he's, <laughs> he's quippy and cutting in a way that, that I really enjoyed. And it's really his only defining character trait. Everyone else seemed to have either a different gun or a Bic razor or an MTV shirt or like some or big glasses or something like there was something about everyone yeah but it was Poncho's personality that distinguished him he could speak Spanish that was cool yeah 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 I liked him I liked him enough to also make him my guy Ben so we're gonna have to share him yeah that's okay there's there's more than enough Poncho to go around I would like to I would like just to mention a shout out to uh, the character of the Russian who was the victim of the knock knock joke <laughs> uh, who was played by Sven Ole Thorson yeah. who was also in Conan the Barbarian uh. Uh, and who was also in the hunt for Red October and also in um, what lethal weapon and gladiator he's like the He's like the six foot five Russian dude whenever you need one of those in a movie. Yeah. And he's only in this movie very, very briefly, just there to receive uh, Schwarzenegger's line reading, but enough to like tip of the hat to him. Friends with Schwarzenegger and McTiernan. I like it. Yeah.
John, why don't you uh, tie up your robe, walk over to your rolling tray, and place it in front of the mic for the selection okay. of our next friendly fire film. Hang on, just a second. I put it over by the I put it over by the drum kit. So hang on. Yeah, I'm kind of pretty well known in the Seattle music community as a maybe one of the better drummers. Whoa. <laughs> Thing's got a mind of its own. And it settles on. Whoa, it can't decide. Oh, there it is. Okay, number 78. Number 78 is a Korean War film from 2016, directed by John H. Lee. Battle for Incheon, Operation Chromite. It is a Korean language film with English subtitles. Oh, cool. Like, There's this whole category of, like, and I feel like a lot of these come out of China, like, there's there's uh there's at least one film on our list that's like a chinese film about world war ii but bruce willis and adrian brody are in it as <laughs> as like i guess american uh consultants or something that are they're there to help the chinese war effort against the japanese uh looking forward to it i do like when we get to go outside of our own culture and see something weird yeah, I always forget about the Korean War films. Why are you culturally <laughs> normalizing, Ben? Just because it's outside of our culture doesn't mean it's weird. Wow. I have a lot to think about. <laughs> you know, maybe you should take another sensitivity class. Ooh. Um, well, that'll be next week, so we'll let Rob's, 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 Rob's take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Hey everyone, Rob here. It's the final day of the Max Fun Drive and I just wanted to say thanks. I know a bunch of you have already either upgraded or became first-time donors, and that means a lot. There's not much more that we can say about it right now. But if you're still on the fence, we're really still trying to make this pork chop challenge happen. Even if you're listening to this at a point in time where the pork chop challenge is a distant memory because we've had this bonus feed for, I don't know, millennia? Look back and understand that just because we reach one goal does not mean that we don't still need support. There are future goals in this world, bigger goals for this podcast. Ultimately, though, we have to make this worth our time. I mean, Ben said it on Twitter perfectly for me. I have a full-time job. I have a partner, I have a dog, I've got my own podcasts. I work on this show because the guys make it worth my while, and I enjoy it. But I can't do it for free, and neither can they. So thank you so much for your support. Remember, you can change your support throughout the year. Let's say you sign up for $50 a month today. Okay, next month you're like, oh wow, I've got a bill I gotta pay, I can't do $50. Well, you email them and you get it back down to $5. Support is support is support. You're here to support, and we thank you for it. And remember, our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. 
The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. If you're using social media to talk about the show, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find all of us on Twitter. Ben's at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Now let's finish off this pork chop. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.